Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is sponsored by local entrepreneur Danny O'Donovan of quickminutes.com. QuickMinutes is a specialized meeting management application that streamlines the administrative process in running a meeting. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Two Naris podcast powered by Unity Media Network. I am your host, James Leonard, and this is my co-host, Timmy. Um, and we have a very special guest this week, uh, John Lonergan. He was in the prison service for over 40 years. He was a governor for over 20. Um, but before we get to John, I just want to thank everybody for their support again, um, your huge feedback um, and a lot of encouragement, a lot of people texting us and mailing us um, that are looking for help and support i hope we've replied to you and i hope you're doing okay um and for anybody that's thinking about uh looking for support from us just get in touch there's no judgment and we'll link in with whatever services near your home um thanks to the patrons that contribute to the show that make it all possible um just 17 of you know it's growing so if you want to get part of the fraternity or the, the club let's say head over to patreon.com forward slash the two and play just the price of a cup of coffee. We'd be very grateful. So without further ado, I bring to you John Lanigan. You're very welcome to Churchfield, John. Thank you very much, James. <laughs> uh, pleasure. Yeah, no, I do you know what when um when we decided that we were going to have a podcast around addiction, recovery, desistance, prison, we couldn't have one without having yourself on. So I I emailed John a long shot and you very humbly said you come to Cork, no problem. So we're very grateful that you've come. Um, and yes. I, I'd be, uh, I'd be, it would have been a big fan of yours. Your speaking and your books. Um, I'd be a criminology student and still involved in criminology in UCC, um, and done some placements in probation-funded projects, a bit of work with the IPS and the Prison Officer Training College, and I think we share similar views. So, um, if you want to start us off about talking about, you know, maybe your early work in the Irish Prison Service and maybe what it's like inside the prison. Yeah, um, goes back a long time now, um, 1968, that's over 52 years ago. And when you talk about a period of 50 years, uh, most people think it's, you know, it's ancient, and it is a long time ago. In a lifetime, it's not that long ago at all. But uh, So I, I spent uh, three of my first years in Limerick, in Mulgrave Street. In those days, Limerick Prison was the prison for all of Munster, uh, parts of Connacht and parts of Leinster. Hard to believe nowadays with the numbers, but um, so Limerick was also the prison for Corkin in those days. Um, so uh, a very, very, um, I suppose, depressing old place, the old Mulgrave Street in, in, in Limerick. Um, small numbers of prisoners, about less than 50 uh, men and two or three women. Uh, but it's, the regime was very basic and uh, the food was horrible. Um, the uni- they all had uniforms, prison uniforms. So institutionalization was a big thing. Humiliation was a big thing. Um, you weren't encouraged to speak with prisoners. 
um, you were encouraged or you nearly you were required to keep your distance and you couldn't show any signs of humanity uh, in those days and if you were if you did you could you'd be in, in trouble so the regime was horrible um, uh, but it was interesting and uh, I discovered almost within a week of my first week there that uh, uh, you know that uh, I, I had to believe going in that all the bad people would be in prison and all the good people would be outside of prison um, most people think like that but within a week I, I had come to the conclusion that that perception was certainly not accurate because what I met in prison were ordinary guys who all had difficulties in those days alcohol addiction uh, physical and mental disability poverty um, a whole lot of things poor education um, and so I realized very quickly that life wasn't as black and white as people thought it was um, and I noticed as well from some of the older staff at that time that um, kindness um, always worked and that became one of my basic philosophies of life because there was a um, in my day, in my time now, I mean, this is funny now because I'm now beyond that age myself. But when you're 20, uh, I, I guess you think anyone that's 40 is an old person. I mean, they look hmm. ancient like. And so people that were, you know, 40, 45 in, in working in the sa- on the staff, I, I thought they were elderly. But this supervisor who wasn't liked by the authority, uh, but he was always very kind to prisoners and he always had cigarettes, even though he never smoked. And occasionally when a prisoner would be down the dumps depressed, he'd, he'd pass him a cigarette, which was a great um, stabilizer and, and, and uh, relaxer. And, um, I, and so I learned as well that kindness to, to people was, uh, was always a winner. Um, but I, as I said, it was a, it's such a tough time in those days. And the regime was very, I mean, there was no tuck shop. There were, you know, there were prisoners weren't allowed anything. There was no education, no probation, no. The doctor dropped in for 10 minutes, looked in, you know, from the circle and disappeared again. Uh, the only time I saw a psychiatrist was when he came in to certify someone who was to, to be insane. Mm-hmm. Uh, took two doctors, a psychiatrist and a doctor. So the services were very, very bad. And, uh, uh, so from there, you know, from there I, I went in, I was sent off to Shangana, uh, an open prison uh, for young people, uh, 18 to 23, and outside Shankill in Dublin, I spent a few years there. That was a tremendous experience because they, I often said to people, uh, James, that people outside don't understand, but the dynamic underpinning every prison's uh, conservative, old-fashioned security prison is one of mistrust. It's not trust. Nobody trusts anybody. Uh, the dynamic underpinning open prisons was all about trust because you were saying to the guys that if you want to, you can leg it, but you'll be back. But um, if you stay, you'll be trusted. And as a result, for instance, education was a lot easier to sell um, and many other things as well. So I learned a lot there. and got to know a lot about young lads. Um, again, I, I, a lot of my assumptions were blown out of the water uh, because I assumed so much. And then I saw evidence that all my assumptions were, were basically wrong. Uh, and I learned that some simple things that I understood very well at that stage, um, many, many young people that I met, mainly from the cities of Limerick, Cork, Dublin, uh, never came across the lads at all. And that was a great education as well. So um, so over the years then, I spent over, about, you know, 42 years in total. And I, I spent 27 of them as a governor. And uh, between Mount Joy, 22 years and four years, a little over four years in Port Vision. And that was... Uh, you know, an amazing experience as well. And, uh, but I suppose over the years, I became to realize that, uh, I've often said this, that, uh, you know, poverty, social disadvantage, and the lack of education that goes along with that culture, 
uh, were the main contributory factors to people ending up in prison. And uh, every time I said it, when I was in the job, people reacted, the vast numbers reacted that I was a do-gooder, um, that I was too soft. Um, it's funny. Um, on my way here today, I met a man who looked for, I asked for directions and he recognised me. He said, you're from the prison, aren't you? And I said, I was. And he said, you know, you did a lot of good work, but uh, he said, I think you're all too soft. Okay, <laughs> thanks very much. Um, <laughs> lovely man. But he would replicate and represent a huge number of people who have no understanding at all about the significance of humanity. Um, uh, you know, being soft is, is uh, you know, is a strength, not, not a weakness. Um, it has nothing got to do with discipline. Uh, I was involved in sport a lot over the years with teams. Uh, discipline is the most fundamental part of a successful team. Um, but it's not cruel, is it? And it's not imposed. Mm. Uh, the greatest discipline is self-discipline to be built upon and to be nurtured within the person so that the individual has the discipline rather than imposing discipline. Uh, so I learned a lot of stuff um, from just observing and from listening. I suppose I could say this, that listening to people who ended up in prison, because for me, they were people, ordinary people. And when I go to secondary schools now, James, what I say to you, and, and most young, especially boys schools, um, but most young boys are almost astonished when I say to them, I met thousands and thousands and thousands of decent people in prison and they're all looking at me as this crazy this crazy guy uh, what would they be in prison for if they were decent people and uh, and but i i believe that and i know that's to be a fact i mean thousands of decent people um who are ordinary young lads except they made one bad judgment because i, I always say one bad judgment leads to hundreds of bad judgments and if you make one bad judgment go the wrong road it's so easy then uh, to make more uh, poor judgments and, and that can have catastrophic consequences. Um, the whole thing of culture, the influence of culture, the influence of peers, uh, being part of and being one of the boys, especially boys uh, and young men, um, where our, our all of us as men, our levels of maturity are way behind, I believe, girls at the same age. I agree. And we, uh, as a result of that, we are inclined, we, are, we have a very poor concept of consequences. So it's no use telling a boy or a young man if you do A, you're going to end up in B. He's still looking at you. Mm -hmm. And uh, so learned a lot from that. And and, uh, and so I suppose at the end, to summarize then, at the end of it all, um, I'm retired now 10 years. Um, when I come to Cork or Limerick or, or and, and around Dublin, I meet hundreds of people who I've met in prison. And uh, the one thing that's satisfying is that I've, so far in 10 years, I've never, never met anybody who was abusive or disrespectful. The very opposite, actually. The, the number of people who would come and say, you know, you were kind to me, you gave me a break, you're the only one that believed in me. Um, I wouldn't even remember what, what I did because what I'd have done would have been a normal thing to do. It wasn't an extraordinary thing to do or it wasn't doing them anything other than what I would regard as a normal thing to do. Being kind to people, being helpful, being encouraging and try to do good if at all possible. And if you can't do, do good, do nothing. So it's a very basic philosophy. Yeah. But for me, it's, it's always worked. And it's about leaving a little mark with everybody you meet. Um, and my philosophy was and still is show respect in every instance to every person on every occasion, irrespective of what the circumstances are. Always show respect. And if you show respect, you're almost guaranteed that it will be reciprocated. Um, and I used to say, and I still believe in it, try to nurture the humanity in people because I always believe this as well. That if a person begins to understand and appreciate and acknowledge their own humanity, 
they're far more likely to uh, show uh, respect to other people and to recognize the humanity of others because it's within the person that all happens in my view so it's all about that sort of stuff it's about nurturing and giving people hope as well um, even on the worst days I used to always try to make that point at the end of a disciplinary hearing maybe where you were you know uh, having to punish somebody what was so important uh, as far as I was concerned always to give the person hope never write off the person never say you will never be anything or you'll never be no good or whatever uh, and be very careful always of, of, of you know, in the position of power as well and authority that um, positions of power and authority bring with it great responsibility and it's so important for everybody in positions of authority to, to remember that at all times that you are in a position of authority you're also the holder of great responsibility and never ever ever uh, be unconscious of that and never ever uh, abuse that authority because you can do awful damage yeah just and something what you said there about you know when you first went into prison you had assumptions of the, about who would be in there and I had similar assumptions you know, when I first went into prison. But I was struck as well in Cork Prison around 2005, I'd say. On A3 landing, there was all people from around here. Churchfield, Grana Braha, Farnery, Nachnahini, Hallihill. And on A2, we've been fellas from parts of Waterford, Tork or uh, Mahan from the south side. Then on B3 was all travellers. B2 would have been Nigerian, Romanian, Polish. Later on in life, when I was going through my social studies courses, you're looking at the most marginalised and socially excluded groups in society, the most the poorest, and they're all placed in the prisons. And that's our answer to dealing mm-hmm. with them. You know, and you know when you were in Mount Joy, it was similar, I presume, like you've a few estates well overrepresented in the population. Well, I mean, all our, all you know, I wasn't that long in Mount Joy at all as governor now in nineteen eighty four. Uh, in 1985, I did a bit of research myself because that was one of the things, believe it or not, extraordinary. Uh, but nobody ever looked at uh, and asked the questions, why? Why? Why are they here? Uh, they're all the same. They all come from the same background. So there has to be some reason or some logic to it. And so I did a little bit of research. And then that was followed up in 1986 by a research conducted by the late Dr. Paul O'Mahony. And I mean, some of the stuff that he discovered, uh, you know, was was very, very significant. Um, six small little uh, geographical areas in Dublin uh, provided 75% of all Dublin-born prisoners. Dublin is a big city, relatively speaking now, but uh, six tiny, not postal districts. I always have to make that point because people get confused sometimes that there are six postal districts. There were small areas within six separate postal districts. So there were uh, sometimes just one housing estate. I can mention it now because I'm gone, but for instance, Oliver Bond flat complex in Dublin, just a couple of hundred yards from O'Connell Bridge. Um, almost every family in that complex was represented at some stage in Mount Joy. And nobody ever asked, well, why? Why are children growing up and ending up in Mount Joy uh, simply because they were born here? And down the road, maybe 100, 200 metres, nobody uh, from that area. So we had to, uh, they were some of the things. Uh, education, which you mentioned yourself, James, is a huge factor. We discovered that only 6% of the prisoners in Mount Joy had stayed at school after 16. Now, when people register that and think about it, only only 6%. So 94% of boys had left school by the age of 16. Uh, something like 58% had left by the age of 15, even down before the, the legal age. So uh, and no, no big surprise then that 50% were illiterate or semi-illiterate. 
So uh, these were all the sort of, and of course addiction, I don't have to mention addiction, going with that culture, going with poverty, uh, social alienation, went addiction, mainly in the old days when I started off, mainly alcohol and old wine and caffeine and things like that. Uh, and that was replaced in the, in the late 70s by her, mainly heroin in the poorer areas. Um, now we have drug problems right across the spectrum of society, but people should never forget that the original uh, bed and housing, uh, the, 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 the area where, where drugs really took root were in the poorest areas of our biggest cities, and starting off in Dublin with heroin and then spreading to other areas. So, And again, there was a good reason for that. Um, and I suppose, James, the other thing, especially with this type of a podcast, it's very important to say to people, to, um, and you know this from your studies, that uh, trying to understand the causes of something is not making an excuse for it. Because people keep saying, oh, don't be making excuses for criminality. I don't make any excuses for criminality. But what I say is, if you don't understand the causes, you will never come up with a solution. Simple as that. Yeah. You can, and that's one of the great scourges of society, is that society thinks it can impose solutions on other people. You often heard the special, why don't they? They. And I, well, that was one of the things I said at a very early stage is stop referring to people in prison as them. They're us. They come from our schools, our communities. They, you know, they grew up in our areas. They are us. And uh, that's about taking ownership. That's what it, we have contributed as a, as a people to, the, to social injustice and to social alienation. We. We have built the structures, the physical structures we put the people in there and then we expect them to compete with children who have every advantage on the other side, education-wise, uh, uh, sporting-wise, creative-wise in every way. And that just won't happen. And uh, so that's where, I mean, that's where a lot of my, my, I suppose, my energy came from to try to uh, rectify that to some degree and try to educate the public as best I could into understanding uh, the, the, dynamic, the dynamics that contribute to people in yeah. like when we started out this podcast like we wanted to give our own stories and it's a very nerve-wracking thing to do to expose yourself but in the strength that people will be able to relate and it might inspire them to or it might encourage them that they could do it too and we want to have people like yourselves people from charities psychologists academics all to come on give their perspective of certain issues and we're very conscious that we're not trying to blame childhoods or anything else mm. for how we behaved we own how we behaved we're not looking to pass the blame on um narrate him like well it's very important to to leave people know that the main point of our stories was to show people that if you're a drug addict or whatever else and you've been to prison there is a way back you know you don't have to stay living in that life and you can get help for your mental health and, and get well and live a normal life, you know, you may have had problems when you were young or whatever, you may have been a lot of traumas, whatever, but it, it, it can all change, you know, that's that's the main reason for, for the podcast, and since we since we started, we've gotten an awful lot of comments back, a lot of, an awful lot of people have gone back to meetings, and uh, gone back to counsellors, you know, because they now believe that if these two lads here can do it, so can I, you know, yeah. um, and um, and it's about this being an educational piece for people. Mm -hmm. Like not everybody has the privilege to go to college like me and Timmy. But if we can bring our wisdom and articulate some of our points and bring it to the people from the comfort of their home, 
it's not about as I said, it's not about making excuses, but maybe people will understand why a lot of people around here end up in prison. Yeah, I I think as well that that um you know first of all I I think I mean I saw you uh, and I looked at the program when you were on uh, Tommy Tiernan, uh, James and and you you were inspirational and so you are Thank inspirational you. and that's it you shouldn't be saying if we are you are because I mean your life story uh, got exposure and uh, what people saw was a person who had struggled and who had overcame the struggles with support which was because uh, you were very strong in saying that. That a couple of people in, in, in intervened in your life, so, so mainly by accident, mm. but they were good people and they were supportive and encouraging, um, and that is one of the things that is so important for people struggling that people believe in them, that they they actually believe. No, no, I I can see you 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 can do it, and it doesn't have to be. I'm not knocking academic achievement at all because it's it's fantastic, but it doesn't have to be. Uh, a degree in a university or, or or a doctorate or whatever it doesn't have to be to to be successful because for some people just one little step is a massive achievement uh, and i i found that when i was working with children in uh, you know they were known as the Bugsy malones 12 to 16 18 year olds in lahan house in 1978 79 and 80 um, and i i saw that that for children who already their lives as young as 12 a few of them from Cork City at the time. Their lives already were were in bits. They were in bits, like. But I learned very, you know, very quickly that the smallest little thing, a tiny little thing, uh, that, that could be, you know, of, of a huge magnitude in their lives. Because uh, so, and even a word of praise. I that was one of the things I learned earlier on. And um, one little word of praise for a, a child that has never been praised, only criticized. Well, that little word of praise can can be life changing. Because what the person is hearing is he believes in me. He he acknowledges some positives in me. So it is very important that it's one step at a time, and it's relative to everybody's life. So like so, everybody. It's you know that's why you can't impose anything on other people. You can encourage them. You can facilitate them. But you must start with on the principle that it is not my life. It's someone else's life, and they have the right to choose. And I facilitate them on that road and encourage them. But it is their choice, and uh, that's what a lot of people, in, you know, for, from the old, you know, the old system would have been so annoyed with the education system, and that if you don't do this or you don't do that, um, you know, that's it, you're written off. Well, you know, lots of there's wonderful people have made a wonderful life, and it wasn't through the, you know, the structured education system or whatever they went their own journey. But um, and most people that I met in life, inside prison and outside prison, at times in their lives they struggled. There's people out there today struggling. Some of them are poor people. Some of them are very affluent people. Um, some of them are very old people. Some of them are very young people. Um, and it is very important never to judge anybody, actually. Yeah, to, and I think the, I think you made a good point there about education, not always being about an academic qualification at the end of it. I've done a couple of placements and volunteering in the Cork Life Centre. They were actually celebrating a birthday around May. Myself and yourself and Sharon Lambert were actually meant to speak at it. Um and they were on Virgin Media TV a few months ago. The Unteachables was the name of the program, but it wasn't about the academic achievement. If they done well academically, great. But it was about the development, the psychosocial development of the young person. They don't do well in mainstream education, and you bring them into the life center, and you're just working on the young people, build relationships. If they don't do well in the in the grades or in the exams, it doesn't matter if they're happy and they're thriving and they're they're doing well socially. That was the important thing about it. And I think 
mainstream education system can be very rigid and it doesn't suit a lot of people. How would you found the mainstream education? Um, <clears throat> it didn't suit me at all because uh, of my own kind of upbringing, I, I wouldn't have had any awareness to be able to sit inside in a classroom, you know. And uh, it was the 80s back then and like <clears throat> there was the teachers really didn't know how to deal with somebody. Uh, there was no name for for, for dyslexia or ADHD or anything like that for, for somebody like me at the time. But um, I found it very, very difficult to sit in class. Um, the, the, there was no one there to either to kind of just say, oh, listen, we understand what's going on for you. We know there was nothing like that. It was just you were kind of just kept to the side and left like that. No, I've said it before. There was no fault to anybody in any of this. You know what I mean, John? It was just... It was just the way the things are were back now. But nowadays in schools, I think it's, I think they they you manage have, it quite well. You have like school completion yeah. programs, and you have homeschool liaison officers and stuff like that. So you would hope that we've developed or evolved our education system to better suit the needs of the young person. But I know in my in my experience, and we spoke about this. My primary school experience was fantastic. I went to Saint Mary's on the Hill. You know some of the people. Liz Nolan and Claire Lovers, great teachers, great great <coughs> memories from there. Mm-hmm. And Timmy would know them people yeah. too. And they're fans of the show. Hi, lads. Um, <laughs> secondary school was not a good experience. University was brilliant. Have you any theories on why secondary school is such a stickler for young people? There's numerous factors. I have always said myself for many, many years, not in my time, because when I was in primary school, it was, you know, it was a bit of a concentration camp. Um, atmosphere as well and and very rigid and the teachers are very rigid uh, there's no comparison in 2020 with the teachers their approach their attitude i think primary education for me is our greatest success story in terms of education i know third level education has been opened up to many people of all social backgrounds as well and, and they made great progress but for me the whole environment nowadays in primary education is excellent um, it's an enjoyable experience for children and that's my my foundation if you're enjoying something if you're happy going in the school door every morning you are winning you are learning your life is is a life and and moving if you hate going in that front door every morning to school it's it's the start of the slippery slope and I, I i i did a little bit of work on that transition between primary and secondary and a number of things came up i suppose the first thing that came up is that competition was introduced into secondary school after by christmas of the first year with the christmas exams and lots of young especially boys but not exclusively but particularly for boys they found that competition uh, you know the the primary school where it's an inclusive thing. Mm. It's every little person on his own or on her own and 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 are nurtured according to their own ability. Uh, there's no competition. The other great secret with the primary education system is they have the one teacher on a consistent basis. So six class has a six class teacher or two or three if you're a big school. But you have that consistency of somebody minding you and looking after you. You leave a primary school and you go into this secondary school where you have 12 or 13 different teachers. Um, uh, you know, so as well as that, of course, you're beginning to mature. You're beginning to, I suppose, become more aware of yourself. If you have any difficulties, you be, they, you're exacerbated because that's mm. the way you are at that age. You think I'm not able to keep up with them. So the whole competition uh, thing, the curriculum has to be finished because, you know, we have five years of this, six years if you include transition year. The end product is the leave insert point. Uh, 
Um, so that system suits quite a number of kids. It's a disaster for a significant number of children at the bottom, especially children who have difficulties with learning or all that sort of home as well. And um, must never forget that home environment. You know, if you have, you know, a, a parent or parents at home where they're struggling, where there's difficulties, where there's all sorts of issues, mental health, addiction, poverty, a whole lot of factors. Um, you know, they may be struggling in their own lives. And then they have on top of that, they have to try to cope with children. And one of the things I found was that often parents themselves uh, were, were indoctrinating negativity into the child at the start of secondary year, almost telling them you'll never be anything. You're wasting your time. Peer influence is huge as well. Young lads who have dropped out of school telling the little fellow that's in first year in secondary school, what are you doing that for? That's a waste of time. Uh, why don't you come with us? And uh, maybe the, the, the benefits and, and, the, and the successes of, uh, you know, drugs, for instance, someone driving around in a car or, uh, you know, beautiful clothes and being able to say, look, look at the life I have and, and I'm not in school. That can have huge influence on young boys as well because they're innocent and they think they're looking for this great glamour. And um, so there's lots of there's lots of different elements that contribute to it. Uh, but that first year in particular is a huge year. Uh, and I think we need an awful lot more effort being put in, an awful lot of our supports put in to support, uh, especially boys, to make that transition. Because if, you know, for me nowadays, um, the important thing is that, uh, you know, if you leave secondary school with, with your junior cert, it's great. If you leave with your leaving cert, it's brilliant. Uh, you, you can drop out of school then if you like the great advantage that's there at the moment is at any stage like you are both examples of it you can go back into third level education at any age in any situation at all and of course that's a fantastic new opportunity that's there now for people of all social classes you don't have to be well off you can actually get into third level and you can prove yourself and with the benefit then of life experience and maturity I mean, there is no end and you're great examples of that yourselves. There's no limit then to what you can do. Uh, so it is about that transition period. I suppose the sad thing for me is always, and I used to say this a lot to the guys in prison as well, it's so sad when you see a, a guy, you maybe lose 10 full years from 15 or 16 uh, to their mid-20s, the late 20s. Actually lose it completely between dropping out of school, unemployment, drugs, often imprisonment. And then when they reach the late 20s and early 30s, they begin to say, why? What a waste of time. But remember, you have lost 10 years. And that's why you're so powerful. I just want to endorse what you do again. It's because you will have credibility. That's the one thing you can do. You can walk to any part of Cork or any other city or town in Ireland, look at them in the eyeball and say, it is possible. You can do it. And the other thing, of course, is to be able to talk openly about the mistakes we make. Um, I think that's very powerful to be able to say to somebody, look, I made that mistake. I, I ruined my life for 10 years or 15 years and I only realized it at such and such a stage. That is tremendous for young people to be able to give them that motivation and that sense of, well, Jesus, like this, he, he did turn his life around um, and he, he turned it around because he copped on really. And I, I think that's a great word to be able to say to them. Look, I just copped on. Yeah, um, I think what you were talking about there, you know, you were describing the person that, in the late teens and last their late teens and twenties, that was me. Like I came into twenty eight, twenty seven, twenty eight, and I was like, "Where has my youth gone?" Do you know, I felt like I wasted on drugs and institutions and prisons and rehabs and all street and all this kind of negativity and people that I would have went to school with. They were buying homes, they were driving cars, they were having children and getting married, and I felt like I was still a teenager. Do you know? But when I come into recovery, then. Uh, I felt like I had a load of I didn't never I'd want to waste another minute you know 
and Ed same with Joseph Tim. We've been yeah. so busy since we actually yeah. were able to turn. It's like you're rushing to guess the 10 to 15 years that you lost into these few years. Uh, I remember my wife having to say, relax. I, I said it in one of the, the last podcasts. I got over to Shelton Abbey, John, on a Friday. And I was inside my college on a Monday. And I only finished my college uh, courses um, nine weeks ago. And it's just... I'm trying to figure out now what I want to do, you know. Um, and then the podcast stepped in and... Yeah, it's just a new, another direction for us now, you know. But this is about, like, when you're coming out of prison now, when you're coming out of addiction, you have to lose all that time. And you, you feel like it's an insurmountable task. But if you break it up into little courses and have little milestones along the way, all of a sudden it becomes manageable. And before you know it, you have a couple of years under your belt. You have, a, you have to make some contacts and you might have a bit of work or whatever. But it's doable and it's manageable. But I just want to go back to something you spoke about there, John, at the start. You were talking about when you first went into the prison, you were encouraged not to um, interact with the prisoners. In the last few years, I think the prison service has moved in another direction. For example, I spoke at a conference one time and I spoke about this female prison officer who would have been very kind to me. And I would have gone, got on really well for her, with her. Now, bear in mind, my my perception of a prison officer was not great. Going up visiting family members and friends and being a prisoner myself, the uniform represented something not to be trusted. But this woman was different, you know, and she blew that perception out of the water. And then I became more open to having conversation with other officers. And the class officer I found to be sound as well. And But... They were sound, and I know you you spoke about this before. When I spoke to my friends about this prison officer, they had a perception of her, but they didn't really know her. But I was able to tell tell them, now, nah, boy, she's sound, she's sound, and they they're not being nice to her. So I know when I go up and we do the training, and we we, we train recruit prison officers in Port Leash, in Ballad House, and it's about encouraging contact now. That's what they want us to do. They want the new recruits to encourage contact. Every contact counts. You can start the intervention. Or you can maybe spark something in that prison. Or uh, what's your take on that? I think it's a progressive step forward, obviously. Yeah, I suppose over the years, um, I, I, I think, uh, I suppose the, the funny thing is, I have to say this as well, because, um, and I did say it at the beginning, like that even when I joined in Limerick uh, 52 years ago, um, and and the regime uh, was pretty tough, and the uh, the environment and the, all that. Uh, but still, there were some very kind, good people uh, working in the prison. That had mainly men, because there was only men in the main prison, and women worked in the women's prison, and no males in the women's prison. Now that's all done away with. But uh, in 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 my day, so there were some older people who, uh, you know, were very kind people and very good people and very caring people, even in those days when it wouldn't have been uh, popular to do that. The big scourge with with the with an institution like a prison, and it, and and to a, a same degree, the guards, uh, they're they're very closely aligned. That is, is that you have a culture. And it's very difficult for a young person going in to start off working in Mountjoy or Cork Prison or whatever it is. Uh, if you're different and if you want to be different, if the general trust of the place isn't on your side, uh, it's very difficult to sustain it. Um, because the culture takes over and uh, what you're told when you go in on the floor is, forget that. This is how we do it here, son. And um, unless you're very strong and really determined... Um, and and be, and be unpopular at times. 
uh, it's not easy. And that's that's the challenge that young prison officers have. I, I think overall, um, over the years, um, the you know the the environment has changed to some degree, but um, you still I mean I you know I suppose working in the, in in Mount Joy and with the Dorcas Centre in particular the women's prison where we I was involved in the design and the building of a completely new approach uh, to how women were treated uh, and the buildings uh, the facilities first of all and then the regime. Uh, and then the out, the outcome at the end and, and being very conscious of the whole thing of trust and trying to, to develop the people and trying all that sort of thing. Um, part of that was was very frustrating for me personally. And even since I left, I, I, I you know, I understand that quite a lot of that progression, progressive regime has been undermined and removed again. And um, so I suppose the, the, the great thing for me or the great challenge that I'd be seeing, uh, James, and when you're talking to prison officers uh, at, at recruitment stage, uh, to const- consistently encourage them to stand by their values. Because I think it's at the end of the day, it's about values. If you don't have real values, it doesn't matter what else you have. And the values you have is around showing respect to other human beings in every circumstances, the truth, telling the truth, being honest and truthful at all times, um, and being kind. I believe if you have those three values, uh, or uh, you know, and you and you operate every day on the floor in the prison, no matter where you are, I don't care in the punishment wing, in the most progressive wing, in an open prison, in a closed prison, it doesn't matter where you're working uh, and what the environment is. If you adhere to those principles, you will leave a mark. And uh, some of my best examples of people who made a difference in prison. Um, I mentioned him by name. He's still alive. Jim Petterbridge was his name, the chief officer in Mount Joy. And uh, when he was dealing with often the most the people with the uh, you know very disturbed mentally, uh, very vulnerable mentally, very destructive in terms of breaking stuff and wrecking stuff, he always operated on the principle of of humanity and kindness. And and those men that that were the recipient of that never ever forgot him for that. And their worst days, they'd say. He was kind to me. He was understanding. He was good-natured. Even when they wrecked the place. And that's the test. That's for me, is the test. It's not when it's easier, when it's popular. It's when when there's a challenge going on and and, and you're never in in a rise or in a disturbance. You still adhere to your values and your principles. And if you do that, uh, then you will influence other people simply by, by being consistent in how you do it. So it is very important that in all stages, in everything you do, that you always uh, have those values and you live by them. And if you live by them, everybody will will know what they are. I think like when I'm doing that training, one question that's always asked, and we've been doing it for three years, if you would want piece of advice to give the recruit prison officers, they ask me, if you would want piece of advice to give a prison officer starting out, what would it be? And I always say, keep your integrity you have to be selected to go through fairly rigorous recruitment process. You have to be selected for who you are, your personality. You know, if you want the you, you want the motivation to help people. You know, if you're compassionate, genuine, keep that. Don't let the system corrupt you. But you could bring that into any walk of life. Yeah, the, the, I say that all the time, James. Uh, you know, because often people would start to laugh when they'd say I was talking about leadership or management or something, and they worked in a prison and they start to say, "Well, you know, we're teachers, we're, uh, you know, we're civil servants, or we're doctors or nurses or something." What, what is the connection? I say, "You work with people. You're working with people in prison. You're working with people." The same principle. I suppose the other thing that I would encourage all the time and then try to encourage it as much as I could in prison is to be non-judgmental. Prison is full of judgments because 
you know, people are committed to prison. They, they have been judged by the courts. I used to always say and try to live by this as well. That's where judgment ends, is out in the courts. The courts have found you guilty of something. But when you come in here, whether you're in for six months or nine months or 20 years, or whether you're a sex offender or an armed robber or simply, a, you know, a petty criminal, it doesn't matter what's on your file. You, you shall not be judged in here. I think that is so important because I know myself that it's one of the one of the great challenges in prison is that staff sometimes judge the prisoner. You know, he's a, he's a, you know, a child abuser. Well, he deserves nothing. That should never be allowed into your mind if you are a professional prison officer. Uh, that person has been judged outside. He's serving a sentence or she is. That is the punishment. Your job now is to look after that person objectively and humanely while he or she is in prison. And that is a challenge because people do allow their biases and their prejudices to influence them. And we have to be very careful uh, in, in, you know, in a situation, like I said at the beginning, you know, a prison officer, if he, a lot of them don't re- recognize it or realize it, but they actually have a lot of power. If you think about it, in a prison with that uniform, you have a lot of power over other human beings. And you must, you need always be, you must be conscious of that and you must never abuse that. Yeah, I think in, you know, in youth and community work, um, in the course, in the bachelor's degree I done, they always talk about working from three core conditions and it goes to Carl Rogers, person Centre theory, about being genuine, unconditional positive regard, as in don't be taking things personal and meet the person the next day, even if they've let you down. Uh, and that's it, about being mm. genuine, unconditional positive regard. And just be nice to people and, and have any closing comments to me? Um, for me, I suppose, really with, with prison officers is you know, just that initial hello or, or a bit of trust. Just to give them a little bit of trust because a lot of prisoners go into prison not trusting anybody, John, you know. Um, and, and for somebody just to say hello, it breaks the ice, you know, and they become more friendly. I'm, I'm speaking off my own uh, view, but... Um, yeah, no, it's like a prisoner goes into the prison system very... Broken. Yeah, and, and mm. maybe have a mistrust of the system. And if a prison officer has been hostile towards a prisoner, it just reinforces it. But if a prison officer can be nice, then it, it's, you begin to challenge what other beliefs you might have of prison officers. So on that note, we're going to have to finish up because we're running out of time. But it was a complete pleasure mm. to have you on, John. Uh, have you any closing comments, then? No, I want to thank you very much. And I look forward to... Uh, to reading the, the books yeah. you know I've got my wife has at the moment that yeah. she robbed me so, so uh, thank you very much safe journey home John. not at all it's a pleasure, pleasure. Yeah, yeah. Ple- pleasure was all ours and I hope you enjoyed it lads um, we'd love some feedback give us some comments on YouTube you know the crack share retweet all that stuff um, next week we've got uh, Philly McMahon so we're on the road and I'm sure you'll enjoy that so till next week slan slan This episode is sponsored by local entrepreneur Danny O'Donovan of QuickMinutes.com. QuickMinutes is a specialized meeting management application that streamlines the administrative process in running a meeting. Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. 
Wondery and Law and Crime bring you the new podcast, The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to the rise and fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.